0: Teach me to walk in the light of his love, teach me to pray to my Father above, teach me to know all the things
1: Some of our viewers uh, will know that uh, 1993 was sort of a crucial and um, defining moment for Sunstone in not potentially all positive ways. Um, So can you discuss uh, the events and the environment that led up uh, to August and September of 1993? and um, your involvement in it, how you were trying to manage it, what you experienced about it, the events themselves, and the aftermath. It's a big question, but we've got at least 30 minutes. So,
2: <laughs> Well, we'll see. Okay. Uh, I don't know how far back you want me to go.
1: Give whatever context you think would be informative for future generations.
2: Well, I think there's an inherent institutional conflict between the church and any independent organization. I mean, so I, that's the first context that needs to be put in. I mean, the church was nervous with this People magazine, which was a very faithful Mormony magazine, they were nervous with farms, which was kind of doing their bidding, or at least some of their bidding. They're, they just don't like, they're, they're nervous with Bookcraft, the Mormon publisher, which they bought, Desert Book bought out, you know, which was out-desert booking Desert Book. Uh, you know, they just don't like that. And so that's the first context, that they're nervous with any independent thing that they don't have control over. And that's probably just inherent in organizations and, for whatever reasons, is aggravated in the church. Um, and then the tension with intellectuals goes way back, it goes back to the Godbyites, goes back to Scott's grandfather, Scott Kenny's grandfather, E. E. Erickson, in the 1930s, when uh, J. Reuben Clark slammed down his his social works. and. Uh, and it goes back to F- F- Fawn Brody and Juanita Brooks, and, and the tension of that the church had with dialogue in the 1960s, uh, uh, in a priesthood meeting even, President Harold B. Lee, you know, counseled people not to, to, to read it. And that nervousness was always with Sunstone too. It was kind of low level on the radar. And... Um, but it was always there. From when Scott went and talked to his old mission president, Boyd K. Packer, you know, and uh, Peggy would have her tensions when she was there. And in the early '80s, Gordon Hinckley, as counselor, the only active counselor in the first presidency, would make comments about the critics inside and outside the church. They're nervous of them. They're they they do not appreciate any main contribution they can have.
1: Well, did you say there are actual direct conversations between Scott? or Peggy and General Authorities during the time Sunstone was alive about Sunstone's role or its approach? Do we know if there were any direct conversations? Yeah, did
2: Scott tell you when he went to Boyd K. Packer? No. Boyd K. Packer was Scott's mission president. Right, he told me that. And when he was organizing Sunstone, he went and had a meeting with Boyd K. Packer. Okay. So, uh...
1: What's the best... I mean, uh, yeah, I
2: get Scott you. to tell you about that, or he actually has written about in that little... in the Sunstone history on his section, on his time. But, uh... So, yes, and Peggy had talked to, to some general authorities. Peggy's related to general authorities. Her great-grandfather was Heber J. Grant. And um, and uh, so when Daniel and I came to Sunstone, um, you know, we wanted to be more faithful. We wanted to have everyone in the tent speaking. We got all these BYU professors coming, and we are getting more subscriptions from mainstream Mormons. And, uh, um, and uh, Gordon Hinckley was even increasing his his comments about, his passing comments about critics inside and outside the church, he would say, you know, we don't need them, we don't listen to them. You know, and Elder McConkie had given his talk about the caravan moves on and the yapping dogs who get left behind. um, So Daniel and I decided to go have a meeting with President Hinckley, who was a counselor at the time. And... um, and invite him to speak at a symposium, and because I think primarily because of Daniel's dad being a general authority, um, we got this interview. This must have been in 1987, and um, or '86, one of the two. And um, President Hinckley took us in his office, and sat down. It was warm and friendly, and congenial, and. Um, I proposed the question to him, the invitation to him, he goes, no, no, I've got, I don't need to speak there, thank you, but no, to the invitation, and I, and so I came back again and said, um, well, you know, you don't really speak in a lot of detail about your reservations about the critics inside, outside the church, could couldn't you come and speak a little more in detail to these people so they could understand your reservations and everything? He says, no, I have all the forms to speak, and I say just what I want to say, you know, and then um, he turned on us and says, But I've got some questions for you. Uh, and he says, um, Who called you to this? Who called you to this? You know? Yes, a man must be called by authority uh, in order to preach the gospel. You know, who called you to Red Sunstone? You know? And we responded, you know, man must not be called in all things. You can do a lot of things on your own, independent, free will, and this sort of stuff. And he kind of nodded like that's a good response. And I can't remember the other questions, but there was like, on the spot, he would come up with these three or four rhetorical questions he'd put to us. And he he put them in a genial way, like, these are just things I think you need to consider, you know. And, um, and, and, And then I said, you know, I really do think Sunstone can help the church. And I hit a button with that one. He goes... Oh, I've heard that argument before. Your know, Penny Fletcher used to tell me that Sunstone could really help the church. He says and um and then he says, you know, but like the time she was friends with Ken Woodward, that religion editor at Newsweek, and she brought she showed him all around when he was doing his article on the MTC and the missionaries. We don't need help like that. <laughs> yeah. And then he says I know Peggy's Pet, Pet, family. And he recited his genealogy. And you know, her grandfather's a senator, her uncle's a senator, her mother's a, 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 a Bennett. No, not sure. Her mother's not Bennett. Uh, yeah, and uh, her mother's a Bennett. Her father's a Fletcher. You know, and they're related to all these people. And grandfather's even great grand. And her uncle, her great uncle, was his missionary companion, Gordon Hinckley's missionary companion. And then after reciting her genealogy, which he knew intimately, what you get from all these old-time families here in Utah, everyone knows everyone who's connected in their lines. He says, considering who her family is, she should know better. <laughs> you know, she was, uh, you know, and so the thing ended, and Daniel, he was really kind of overcome with love for Gordon Hinckley, who I don't think President Hinckley, that you know, comes across genially in his speeches and stuff, I don't think he's a very demonstrative person in terms of his affections. Daniel went up to him and embraced him, and he, I, I watched as Hinckley kind of hesitantly <laughs> embraced him back. And so I hugged him too, and, um, and then as we left, I remember saying to Daniel as we're leaving the church administration building, You know, well, you know, at a minimum, he has to say, I don't agree with those guys, and I think they're wrong-headed in their approach, but their motives are good, and they're trying to do good. You know, and Daniel said, yeah, you know, that's probably what his final conclusion would be. Boy, were we wrong. (laughs) Um, John Ashton, whose father was Marvin J. Ashton, and John was a liberal on our Sunstone board. Came back back to us a couple of weeks later, furious, and uh, and Marvin Ashton, or John Ashton, said to me, said to us, "Quit trying to talk to those guys. Just leave them alone. They're never going to get it. And the more you talk to them, the madder you make them." You know, and I was of a different mindset at the time. I said, "Because we were sending them all complimentary issues," and John said, "Stop sending them the magazine." He says. They, and I said, well, you know, if they can't be part of the conversation, at least it's healthy for them to overhear it and to know what people are saying. He says, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. They don't overhear the conversation. They just find things to get mad at. He says, they'll look through an issue. Maybe there are four or 5 greatish articles that could appear in the enzyme. And you don't get any credit for this. You just get peed for the one mad. And the more mad ones they get... I'd say, but isn't it better for them to read the whole article than just to read highlighted parts that someone sends them? And where they just read those highlighted quotes? He says, no. He says, no, it's not. They they don't think like that. All they do is, they're trying to defend the church and they just get mad that they see things that they think are wrong. In particular, they can't, you won't stop when they tell them to. And, uh, so Daniel and I thought, well, John probably knows more than we know, after all. His father's an apostle. And, um, so, but we didn't want to just stop sending them the magazines. So they, because uh, then they would say, "Why aren't we getting these anymore?" Now they don't want us to know what they're saying. So we found a way to um, that we thought we were very clever. We would send out a form letter saying to everyone, um, "You know, we've we got all these complimentary issues to send to people. We're very happy to send them, but you know, we don't want to send magazines to people to." to to people who don't want them. So here's a return card. Could you just check, please continue sending me this or not, and send it back. You know, And so it's their choice, sort of. And uh, I remember the day we got back in Mass all of the um, cards from the Apostles. They'd all been checked by the same blue pen. It's like they talked about us in a quorum. They said, okay, John, you collect the cards and send them all back, or the executive secretary or something. They were all just perfectly checked by the same hand, same pen, same kind of check. Whereas it was a mixed bag from the 70s you know some 70s would say yes i appreciate you sending this to me you know and others would say no 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 they didn't all get the memo that the 12 did and then um
1: did you have the signature of the members of the 12 no no just
2: they just, they had their name on it okay. i guess maybe we put i can't remember we, we probably put their mailing label on it or something um
1: so they were paying attention they wanted to keep getting
2: it. now the 12 did the 12 all said no some a few 70s said yes the 12 all said no? All said no. All checked by the same pen, okay. all no. Okay. It's like one person filled out all of their cards. Okay. They turned in all their cards to one person, and they all filled out. I'd like to know that story. But, but some seventy said yes, although many said no. And then, but it shows you how out of touch some people are. The Relief Society Presidency sent the cards back, checked yes, with flowing, flattering comments. Thank you, thank you, appreciate the good work you're doing. (laughs) You know, and uh, so most of the 12, all of the 12 and most of the general authorities were no longer getting the magazine, uh, which is probably a good thing, but probably too late. Um, Then a year later or so, 1987 this would have been. No, 1987 was the alternate voices talk by Dallin Oaks. Uh, warning people against critics inside and outside the church. And um, and then there were changes made in the Temple Endowment. And, um, and a lot of the press reported those changes in the Temple Endowment. Around
1: 1989,
2: 90, something like that. 18, 89. Yeah. And it was like 87 was the alternate voices, 89 was the Temple Endowment. It's like these two-year increments as you lead up to the crescendo. Um, and... Lots of newspapers uh, reported the changes in the Temple Downlands, the elimination of um, the, the blood oaths, you know, and the slitting of the throat and stuff, and uh, uh, getting rid of some certain things. And um, we, in our little news section, often reports how the media are covering the church. And so we did a news story about the news coverage of the changes in the temple. And we didn't really report in any detail what was, being ha- what was happening uh, what, was, what was actually changed in the temple. Um, but after that, shortly after that issue came out, with that news story, um, I was called in by my stake president, who upbraided me very strongly for having run that article. And he thought, so I said, it was bad judgment. And, and break, uh, breaking of my temple covenants. Now, and I tried to have a discussion with him, like, well, what don't you actually covenant in the temple, and what you covenant not to reveal? We didn't reveal any of those things. So that didn't matter to him, and he really didn't want to discuss it. And um, he took my temple recommend away. Um, so I went in the next day to the office and told Daniel about that, and Daniel, and we talked about what to do about that, and then a couple of days later, and I also asked my stake president, now, were you told to do this? have you had any conversations with anyone about this? He says, no, no one has told me to do this. I haven't received any conversations. It's just for some time, I've been concerned about having a stake member, member of my stake do Sunstone, and this has broken the back. And, um, but then a few days later, Daniel's stake president called him in and had a similar conversation, a little more polite, and um, took Daniel's recommend. So clearly, the, the, this thing was organized from the top. Which later, I happened to run into our my area president. I was with Gene England at some conference, and our area president was there, and Gene was saying, hey, let me introduce you, because Gene liked this area president, to Elbert Sunstone. on yeah, Sunstone. And Gene didn't know about our temple recommends being taken, but the area president clearly knew. And he said to me, as he shook my hand, he says, I know about everything that's been happening to you and Daniel. And he says, let me tell you, it came from far above me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, so my stake president lied through his teeth to me, which he lost all credibility with me at that moment. Daniel's parents were abhorred that his recommend was taken and really hounded him to get it back. And so because of his dad and mom, Daniel worked very hard in meeting and talking to a stake president and a year later had his temple recommend restored. And uh, maybe a little after that, Daniel left Sunstone um but I, I didn't want to ever talk to that state president again, so um so we just let it go I didn't have a temple recommend. Daniel and I had decided to keep that secret. we didn't want to become martyrs for the cause have <laughs> it be publicized about. but a few of our friends found out about it, and our good friend Pat Bagley, the cartoonist, told the reporter at the Tribune, and so she wrote a story about it, and it appeared in the press, much to our chagrin. Um, so, our temple recommends were taken, and the way I sort of see the church doing these things is they—they, um, I think, the brethren feel like they sent clear messages through Elder Oaks's talk, through the taking of the temple recommends, and um, and
1: then there became. And
2: that was private. But, yeah, I think they feel, and I've heard reports where they say, you know, the true saints, only a whisper and only a hint, and they'll follow it. And the more or less faithful ones, if you can even tell them explicitly, they won't follow it anyhow. And clearly we weren't following the whisperings or the gentle, gentle counsel of President Hinckley. Um, and so I think they're getting more and more frustrated. At the same time, um, they're probably hearing more about Sunstone. The number of our readers have increased to 10,000 by now. I think we have a lot more visibility. They probably have more people in Salt Lake talking and asking them about Sunstone. And also the number of BYU faculty involved in the symposium, which I think one symposium was like 60 or 70 fat BYU people were in a symposium program. Um... I think that troubled them, too. It's like, we're paying these people, and we're supporting these people. And so there, became, there started to be increased pressure not to let BYU people do it, you know. Um, and they, BYU was going through its 10-year 10, 10, uh, uh, 10, 10 review process, and they wrote into it uh, that we don't want people to speak at Sunstone or write for dialogue. And... Um, and so, but BYU faculty still would speak in large numbers. So I think the brethren are, like, nervous about the exposure. And then we published the, Paul, the George P. Lee letters, which I'm sure they didn't appreciate. And then we published uh, the Paul Dunn issue, which they didn't appreciate. So there, leading up to the, the 1993, there's probably on the brethren's part an apprehension that we need to do something about Sunstone, our more quiet, gentle attempts, haven't been responded to. And this cancer is growing. (laughs) I'm sure that all happens. And then comes the Sunstone Symposium of 1993, which turned out to be, I I I was going to say a little wild, but it turned out to have a lot of sessions in it that the brethren were very upset with. It also happened to coincide with the Salt Lake Tribune deciding to hire a reporter who would have a beat in religion. They happened to hire Peggy Fletcher. And she filed a lot of stories in the newspaper about speeches at the symposium. And as a good journalist, which she is, you cover the controversial stories, you don't cover the boring stories, you know? And so things that would have been contained within the symposium now had a broader announcement in, in that context. So um, Dave Knowlton gets off the plane and, um, and comes back and gives his talk, you, and uh, which, um, which is about what's happening to the church in South America and, and the missionary program there. And you can almost take the statement on symposia that comes out a month later and identify which symposium session they're talking about point by point. Um what's his name? Who? The columnist for the Deseret News, who's no who's now Jewish and lives in Texas, what's his name? Mm.
1: Jolly?
2: Yeah, Clifton Jolly. Clifton Jolly proposes something for the symposium. Up until that point, Clifton Jolly had been a columnist for the Deseret News, you know. So we thought, Great, we want a Desert News person in the the thing. Yeah, as an aside, my philosophy in organizing symposiums had been to spend almost all my time recruiting moderates and faithful people, so-called faithful, but moderate voices in the church and conservatives if we could get them. And I didn't spend a lot of time recruiting the liberals because we got plenty of them coming in on their own. You know, so we're happy. Clifton Jolly makes a proposal. Daniel missed the alert signal when a Clifton said to him, "I don't." Just before his session, I don't want my session to be recorded which, you know, we don't record and disseminate them without their permission, so we didn't record it. And Peggy didn't report it, but it was still reported back to the brethren. And in that, Clifton, like, we, who knew he was going through a midlife crisis and in the process of leaving the church, very angrily. And his whole thing is an attack on the church and on the church culture. And in the talk, he says, you know, well, what, why even something like sunstone is just not good after saying how the whole church is bad, and what what we'd spend our time better if we just paired everyone up and went off in the cars and fucked each other like bunnies, and uh, <laughs> and he goes on and on, and then he crescendos to his concluding line, which is about the current president of the church. He says, "Well, Ezra, you fucked us again." <laughs> <laughs> in, a sense, <laughs> in a sense, the presentation, which all hears people about, you know. But there's some, no doubt, someone in the audience who's taking notes, because uh, the church used to send people to regularly go and report on what happens in every symposium, who sends it back to the brethren. So, you know, the line in the St. the Symposium about speaking ill you know, and using bad language about the brethren and stuff, that's clipped and jolly. And there were other sessions, which if I looked at it, I could remember them all. But it,
1: no, there, was the, there was the women one, the, with Margaret Toscano and, and Lavina and, and Michael Quinn about if, was it if the women have had the priesthood since 1840? That's right, Michael Quinn's
2: statements, yes, in that session, particularly Michael Quinn's statements in that session, you know, um, come up. Yeah, and the brethren had been sort of moving in, in, already in places, which is, because um, um, Margaret Toscano had been called in earlier a year that year to uh, where they explored the possibility of having, having a disciplinary court about him, about her. And um, so... That August, a couple of weeks, two weeks after the statement on symposia, the Thursday afternoon or Friday after the Brother meet in the in the quorum, in their meeting in, in their room, uh, they issue their statement on symposia. Um, it's and it's curiously issued by the council of the first presidency and the quorum of the twelve, which very, most statements come out from the first presidency. And my take on why that was issued by them is that. Um, at that time, you had a weakened profit pretty much out, out of it. And when that happens, the authority of the First Presidency and the counselors diminish and you revert back more to collegial. And so they were speaking collectively as 15 because they really couldn't speak on a new topic as three. Um, and so that, I happened to be on a family beach trip in, 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 in North Carolina when that statement is issued and I get a phone call from Peggy wanting a quote for the newspaper about it. Um, so that's sort of why I think the statement was issued. But all of those reports from the symposium that came at such a time, the Clifton Jolly, the David Knowlton, you're right, the Michael Quinn and the feminist quotes and there were a couple other. they just said these people now have gone over the top.
1: Now, I don't, now, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I haven't known the history and so I always just assumed you as the editor would have been reviewing all these things ahead of time and that you would have even been complicit in some of the anger and rage that was starting to emerge. I've gone back and listened to a lot of these presentations and I heard comments about, I was trying to use this title, but, but the editors told me I had to use this title. There were three other presentations we wanted to present that were actually more angry, but, but they were denied. And so this is the only one we got I mean so all I'm trying to say is from what I understand you are really trying to make sure that the tone was respectful or as respectful as possible, but that's just I'm not trying to... No, that's
2: right I, no, 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 that's true, I mean um, we didn't know what Dave Knowlton was going to say because I like Dave Norton's his anthropological look on Mormonism from South America which we published several popular articles of his which I really liked and he basically came right off the plane and, and oh, they threatened Dave Knowlton for harming, doing damage to the missionaries, potential da- damage to the missionaries, that was the, the line from the statement on his. Um, So we didn't know what he was going to say, and we didn't really know exactly what Clifton Jolly was going to say, which that's true. That's part of the dynamic of an open forum is sometimes people say things that are irresponsible and you need to have a, you try your hardest to get responsible speakers and responsible voices, and sometimes that trust is violated. Um, No, but my personal view was, my whole approach to dealing with this tension with the church is. I sort of have griefs rather than grievances, and I get sad rather than mad. And I want to have, and I like these people, and I disagree with them. So I always want us to have to be more respectful. And so we do tone down, well, the more boring sessions we try to tone up their abstracts to get people to go to them. But the more inflammatory things we try to tone down their titles. And, and um, I think an open forum doesn't mean anyone can say anything. It means any topic is all, is, is, is not off-limits. You don't censor because of the topic, and you don't censor because of the person, and like, Michael Quinn, because you're excommunicated, you can't speak. But you do select based on quality of thought <laughs> and, uh, and thoughtfulness and uh, and respectful language, because that respectful language builds dialogue. Disrespectful language, no matter how right you are, alienates people, and that's always been my inclination to try to get people to do that. And and um, I often wonder, if, did I not censor people more? And, and that would that have served the cause in the longer run? And that's a comp- com- com- complex um, process because Sunstone is this organic social organization where people feel a, um, a right to be involved and they're part of the community, and it's hard to tell a Levina or a person... You, you can't speak at all, you know sometimes you can say that topic really not not that topic is wrong, but but your dealing with it needs to be a little more rigorous and a little more respectful, I and mean, you can have that kind of conversation with them but you you don't want to be banning everyone just because you're killing the organization that way rather than killing it the other way. but my own personal style would be much more tempered than some of the things that happened. And that's where we're facilitators of a group of people, and we're not the controllers of the group of people. <laughs> you know, you can only, only have a, such an impact so far. And the, the moment side was getting more and more high-pitched, and people were complaining, whereas early on, behavioral scientists like Bonner Ritchie, who, who probably started the whole thing in Sunstone with his institutional and individual church, he certainly introduced the phrase the institutional church, where people started talking about institutional church, and you could t- you could criticize how we act dysfunctionally as an institution without necessarily criticizing God and the and, and, and the, the divinity of the church and uh, and that kind of just grew as people were saying this is a, and this doesn 't help this doesn 't help and feminists really picked up on criticism of systematic institutional processes and gays were starting to do the same thing, and then abuse victims <laughs> were starting to do the same thing, and so you found. Um, an audience. You found more speakers who liked to criticize the church organizationally, um, and some of them were, were more amateurs than others. And you found an audience who was like wanting to hear that conversation more. It was kind of a, and so that's building up to, the, to the, the time. And because of the things like alternate voices talk and other talks, you see in the symposium more and more people defending the rights of intellectuals and more and more of them defending the right to speak freely in the church. And that's kind of an outgrowth from the Camelot years. Although, ironically, the, the people who fought the Camelot Wars, who were a lot of them in the Smith Institute and other people, had pretty well made their peace with the church by the time the, the, the September 6th event came along. And they were not very sympathetic with, with, with what was happening there. Many of them thought Sunstone had gone too far. It's hard for people to make judgments because they all make judgments on such limited knowledge. They hear about one session or they hear about two sessions even and say, oh, they're over the top. If They're doing that sort of stuff. They shouldn't be allowed to do it and they shouldn't be happening. You know, and you know, they're, they're judging the whole from a, a very few.
0: Teach me to love teach me to pray to my father above teach me to know all the things that Together we'll learn Of his commandments That we may return Home to his presence To live in his sight Always, always To walk in the light